We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. What is your relationship to death and mortality? Don't say this podcast does not ask the difficult questions. In fact, I would be really surprised if you get a more difficult one today. So it's all up from here. If you're like most people, you have hardly ever given death or mortality a thought beyond to turn up your collar and walk in the opposite direction. We live in a culture that thinks this is a morbid topic and talking about it tempts fate. However, mortality is at the heart of the meaningful life because if it was endless, would anything we do be truly meaningful? When I have a truly deep question to ask, I reach for a Jungian analyst. I have a whole shelf of them, you'll be pleased to know. Paul Attinello, trained at the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich and is in private practice in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. He's just retired from Newcastle University's International Centre for Music Studies. I knew I had to interview him when I heard one of his lectures where he said his relationship to death and mortality had changed many times. Welcome to The Meaningful Life, Paul. Thank you, Andrew. It's lovely to be here. I learned about death when I was five years old. My mother told me that my grandfather had died, and when I cried, I was told not to be silly. I was not taken to his funeral or those of various great aunts who died through my childhood and my teenage years. So what messages did you get about death as a child? Wow. Um, Since a lot of today in the background you know, a lot of my experience and life and change and research has been AIDS, HIV. Remembering back to before then is a bit of a shock. But I know that a younger self in perhaps my 30s, I would have been thinking, ah, yes, the first time I sort of met death was at the age of nine when my grandfather died. And it was very calm and very normal. You know, American church, nothing particularly dramatic or bizarre in any direction, and seeing his body. And also, the truth was, I hadn't known him terribly well. He was an older man, I was the youngest of four children, and we just hadn't seen him a great deal. He was a pleasant man on the edge of things. But the fact that I remember it (laughs) tells you something right there. It's a marker. There's this whole sort of, oh, what is that? What do I do with this? So I don't think it was a huge shock, but it definitely changed me. So a big moment uh, for you and your relationship with death was in 1983 when your boyfriend at the time died. What was that experience like? And even so, I shouldn't say boyfriend. Really? Why not? I've loved him very much. We had had a brief sexual relationship, had seen each other occasionally. I was about seven, eight years younger, and he was kind to me. So he cared, and I went to the hospital a lot. But I do realize when I think of him as, you know, he's terribly important to me. What was his name? Reed Bytrusten. 
Right. Let's give him his proper name. Of course. Beitrust is as in a German spelling. I've actually spoken to his niece, who was delighted that I remembered him, because unfortunately he dies early enough in the AIDS crisis that the only reason he's on the quilt at all is I added his name to a group panel. He died December 2nd, 1983. Oh, gosh. Tall, handsome man, terribly kind, terribly educated, incredibly beautiful. And he become extremely ill in the summer of 1983, bloated Kaposi sarcoma, you know, marks all over his body, suffering from problems with liver and uh, bile glands and this sort of thing. Um, it was one of those early cases of many, many illnesses hitting the body. And it was rough. And uh, by the way, <laughs> one of the strange things that I occasionally mention that I suppose will always be at a bit of a mystery is fairly late in his illness. I remember looking at him bloated and in pain and with markings on his skin and thinking, I have never seen anyone so beautiful. Wow. And I can't even explain that. You know, it wasn't a, I just knew it. So I don't have, as I say, given my background, I don't have a simple theory of why that happened. I just know it was there. And I'm incredibly grateful for it. So how old was he and how old were you? He was, I think, 30 when we met in 1980. So he's dying a couple of years later. He's in his early 30s. At that point, I'm about 26. And um, hmm, handsome, elegant, smart, but really kind. When, when you speak, when I speak of someone sort of tall and blonde who's terribly handsome, who had wonderful dinner parties and worked as a waiter, one might think, oh, so arrogant, right? But no, absolutely not. Um, someone hugely kind. I remember at his funeral, I remember um, a rather hefty girl standing up, very shy with glasses, and saying, I just wanted to say I worked in an office with him, and the first day I worked, he said, have you ever had sushi? And I said, no, he took me out to lunch for sushi. He was incredibly kind. He was my hero. And that sort of, I remember hearing that and going, yes, yes, I got that too, right? And 26 is incredibly young for your contemporaries to be dying. Of course, of course, of course. It is, this is where the slightly peculiar thing that I do will start. Um, if I saw my grandfather in the coffin at the age of nine, and it definitely struck me. And then I was reading a lot of rather intense literature and plays and philosophies that probably had a lot of danger, darkness, death in it, right? Still, when it hits when Reed is dying, the world absolutely falls apart. And I did, ah, uh, let me see. When am I going too fast, I suppose? As, I, as I've told you, we've run uh, HIV patient groups for 20 years here in Newcastle. I think my group has now ended, but we've been telling our stories to medical students for 18 years. So I've done many of these stories over and over from different angles, and I'm very comfortable with them. But if I at times get a little incoherent, you have to excuse me. 
Hmm. So feel free to lead me. Where would you like yep. me to go now? Because you can see I'm seeing multiple memories piled on top of each other. Exactly. I was just thinking how it changes your attitude to death. There you are. You're sitting mm. beside somebody that you love, and mm-hmm. they're just a few years older than you. You're mm-hmm. in this health crisis. Right. And it was horrifying. He looked terrible, right? And by the way, a tangential aspect of that was of the various gay men coming and visiting him, even though the gay community got very good at taking care of people with HIV, in 1983, we did not know what we were doing. And I know that we were sort of staring at Reed in horror, which must not have been very pleasant for him, but he tended to take care of us, right? A few years later, it would have been quite different. Um, I know that at one point when we were sitting alone, he said, you know, you're just wasting your time in San Francisco. Get out of here. Go back to school. Get the PhD. And Which is when I applied to UCLA and I, I got in a few days after his death. So there was a, there was that sense of continuity fatherhood, him caring enough to say, you know, don't be a fool. Let me push you on to the next step in your life, whatever's happening to me. So in 1987, you tested positive yourself for HIV. Was that a surprise or was this something you expected? Several steps along the way. Reed's death, December 1983. Things are terrifying and disorienting. I'm quite proud to say I was one of the writers and players in what we think might be the second play about AIDS which was the AIDS show, which uh, showed at Theatre Rhinoceros in late summer of 1984, just before I was going to UCLA. And what I wrote was a little peculiar. You can tell I was reading a whole lot of Grove Press experimental theater at the time. It was a show sort of made up of different modules from different people, as I say, 10 players, 10 writers overlapping somewhat. And um, most of the people were going for something a lot more realistic, a lot more, here's a monologue, here's a pair of people, this kind of thing. I was thinking a bit more bizarrely and experimentally of a series of parties year after year from 1981 to 84. I don't think I went to 85. No, it must have been 84. And saying, essentially, I believe they were New Year's parties, actually, And sort of a gradual disintegration of conversations, increased fear and confusion, people saying things that were rather incoherent or misleading or unhappy or, you know, I'm frightened and I don't know what's going on. And trying to capture something that is very hard to explain today. I was trying to explain it last night to students um, that the early years of HIV knowing what a virus was, knowing what an immune system was, understanding this chaotic disintegration of bodies, scared everyone. Everyone was abjectly confused and frightened, which is why also in movies and science fiction of the period, you'll see suddenly all of those viruses appear, right? Nobody's talking about viruses before that. They're not of interest. Nobody's really worried, right? But somehow magical, dangerous viruses show up in movies and things from 1983 onward. And that is also when computer viruses are created as a metaphor, 
which literally the man who creates the idea of a virus that you watch for on your computer is referring to AIDS. Wow. And it's a little scary to think something that is now so obvious to us. So, oh, we know what that is. Before that, it was just invisible. But it was also touched with terror and disorientation, and we don't understand this because it's complicated, right? And for people of that era who lived through this period, there are sort of key sort of points where American swimming pools, after somebody who was gay went swimming, order everybody out and drain the swimming pool. I mean, that shows you the level of panic. And yet you had a, a lover and all the people around you were dying. So did you feel like, I mean, this is a weird question. Did you feel like you had something inside your body that, you know, the aliens had taken over? God. Well, I suppose let me keep going step by step. I'm sorry, there's so much stuff here. It's, I guess these are big chunks of my life, but I promise I can gallop more quickly through them. Um, Reed dies, I become more aware of things. You've got that play, which was for me also an expression of fear and disorientation. Then I go to Los Angeles, where everything's sunnier and people aren't dying. There wasn't anywhere near as much HIV AIDS at that point in Los Angeles. And I start a master's and the UCLA people are like, oh, you're great. You're not a hopeless failure. This will be so exciting. Life is wonderful. And over the following three years, there's more AIDS in Los Angeles. There isn't a cure. We don't find a solution. And things are just getting worse. And in late 1986, I write what was actually my last composition. I intended to fantastically be a composer at the time, uh, gradually realized I just wasn't good enough at it, basically. But when my teacher challenged me to just do something simple and honest once a day for a week, I did seven short pieces on Japanese death haiku. And you can see where this is coming from for me. And I'm still very proud of them. They're small pieces. I think any composer would go, oh, well, that's cute. But I'm deeply proud of how honest they are. Um, Actually, students at Newcastle performed them a year, uh, a few years ago. And I felt, yes, thank you. I'm, I'm done with this now. I'm happy with this. But there was a statement of, yes, I get it. I see how close this is. And the following year in April, you can see how slowly I'm moving through all these spaces. I go to the Gay and Lesbian Center in West Hollywood, have a test, uh, a few more details here. I'll have a test from a burly bear of a nurse. And at the time, there's enough sort of background drama that at one point I'll say, what about our results? Are they safe? What's the where? Because this is a time when also people are talking about putting us all in camps in Utah, as in the UK, they were talking about, I'm sorry, I forget which island. Do you remember? It wasn't um, Jersey. I think Isle it was the Wight? Isle of Wight. Yeah. I, knowing the yes. people of the Isle of Wight, they would have been absolutely thrilled with that idea. But <laughs> It it has Queen Victoria's um, summer holiday uh, residence there. It, it doesn't seem to be a very suitable place for an internment camp, but cream teas right. are more in all, more the order it's, of the day. It's so demented. But of course, this is all about that meta-subject of 
how terrified are we by death? And, and even, how much do we invent solutions? Sorry, go ahead. Well, what I was just thinking was we were so, you, you were ter- so terrified, the whole culture was so terrified yes, yes. that you couldn't actually, until you were given permission, you couldn't actually be honest with yourself and you wrote those Japanese pieces of music. It sure. was sort of so there, but yes. so not there at the same time, which in a sense is our whole relationship with death really, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. They were such transformational pieces for me because they are so simple. You know, the last one was Basho's On a Journey Ill, essentially the last haiku he wrote, where he's traveling through the landscape, he knows he's ill, he knows he's dying, and he sees the fields, and that's all there is, and that's enough. And I had this shimmering but unstable piano backdrop, which was, you know, it's not pretty, but it's not, it's just very fluid and unstable instead of going, oh, well, this is how it is. All right. And that was a big help for me. So I go and get the test. I ask about who has access to the results. And the burly nurse says, actually, I keep all of the results in this filing cabinet by the door. And I have already planned that I can keep the door locked and destroy files if anyone comes for them. Gosh. Right? I mean, it's got a bit of an Anne Frank quality to it, doesn't it? It's a little... And I remember thinking, wow, okay, this is now one of my heroes, right? Fortunately, it never came to that, but it did look like that at the time. So at the time, it takes a month to get results. A month? (laughs) Of course, of course. And a month was faster. It was like, oh, great. It's only 30 days. Fine. I mean, how do you live for 30 days under those circumstances? Well, I think this is one of the things that was so difficult to get across to the class last night and that we have repeatedly tried to get across to uh, medical students, students. You know, it's just hard to explain to them. Between 81 and 96, approximately, is a quality of terror and disaster that does sort of evaporate when protease inhibitors appear. Even though there are still people dying, it's still difficult. Somehow it recedes to something more material, more in the world. You know, we've had a little of that with COVID, but not quite as fantastically. But there was a point when AIDS seemed absolutely insane, absolutely terrifying. It's it's hard to explain that to them. I can show them artworks and they're like, wow, are you people okay? Yes, it's a... It is strange, isn't it? Well, maybe not okay, because maybe these whole experiences change you forever. Yes, I think they absolutely have. Which, given your original question, is my changing relationship with death? Let me give you a couple more steps. Oddly enough, the social worker who gives me my results, Mitch Walker, is still a Jungian analyst in Los Angeles terrifically smart man, a sort of Nietzschean mountain climber of an analyst, which I have tended to be drawn to those. There's so many different kinds of therapists and analysts, and some of the ones who are a bit terrifying have been some of my main analysts. Fortunately, at the end, I had someone rather kinder who was very good for me. But Mitch was fantastic. He gave me my results. He said, well, I'm studying as an analyst. Would you like to be a patient for a low rate of $15 an hour. And I said, sure. So we did analysis for five years. Now, 
The only limitation there was we both knew I was going to die soon. So that was the primary subject. There was no expectation or hope, right? This was it. So what's it like being told you're going to be dead in five years' time? Again, another story we used to tell the medical students, because all of the people with HIV tended to have the story of when they got their results, right? And mine is, going in, I absolutely knew I would be positive. There was no question. It was impossible that I wouldn't be positive. And Mitch said, you're positive. And I was absolutely shocked. Wow. So there's something about, well, you know, difference between imagining something and having it hit you in the face, right? How do we face reality? It is a tough thing. So your relationship with death and mortality was a very close one, really. They're a very intimate one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too intimate, I think. I did tend to become, gosh, there are even more steps to this. I promise I shall get to some sort of end. Some of the other odd things that happened in the late 80s, I'm seeing Mitch as an analysand. There were actually three main pillars of taking care of me. Another was a friend, Terry Wolverton. I'm still in contact with her. She's helping me keep focused on some of my current writing. Terry Wolverton, a lesbian writer in Los Angeles, big in the Women's Institute, not Women's Institute, the, the Women's Building, and some of the other groups in the area, was running a workshop for people with AIDS, a writing workshop. And over the years, there were from four to six of us on any given week, and we would talk about what had happened to us that week. We'd spend about 40 minutes or an hour writing, and then we had the chance to read if we wanted to. And I did a lot of poems and short stories and essays, and some of the other people in that group have published that kind of thing. And it was terribly supportive and terribly honest because Terry is. She's one of those extraordinarily clear-eyed people who is with you every step of the way, you know, much like a lot of therapists are, right? And then the third was my AIDS Project Los Angeles was the big organization in Los Angeles. And they had a buddy system that I think was new in 87. So they paired me up with another gay man, John Shinevier, an actor who then became sort of my buddy, my friend. And he was a chela for a guru in Florida, Ma Jayasati Bhagavati. And she started visiting Los Angeles and later San Francisco and ended up making AIDS one of her major sort of um, projects, right? Taking care of people with AIDS. And she was wonderful for me because she was very unlike most religious people. She was sort of, um, uh, you know, in Buddhism, they're sort of the the crazy teachers or the, uh, she was spectacularly wild and fun and cheerful and loud. You know, religious people usually aren't, but she was quite noisy and tended to bring a lot of people and a lot of food and to challenge us and be full of this sort of motherly energy with gusto, which given that I was, al- that I was already being rather sort of, uh, I didn't even know how to describe this from the outside. Shall I say I was being mopey, right? I'm a serious intellectual. I've read a lot. I'm a bit lonely. 
and I've been told I'm going to die soon. So, of course, my response to it is to mope around West Hollywood for some years. (laughs) And she will essentially challenge me on this and will push me to give me an image of something much more full of chaotic, energetic life. So I'm telling you too much, aren't I? So those three people were giving me a way forward. And I do finally finish the master's. Then in 96, we get the new medications. I think, oh gosh, I'm going to live. I end up finishing my PhD to everyone's astonishment because by then it's 13 years since starting and go and teach in Hong Kong, which is fantastic. And I have this glorious apartment overlooking the ocean. I remember coming out in the middle of the night, you know, one of my first tropical rains ever. It's the summer in Hong Kong. I have this glorious apartment, this glorious job. I'm going to live. And I remember this torrential rainstorm and coming outside soaking wet, thinking, oh, this is amazing. Now I understand, right? The way people are about tropical rains, the the rich sort of, uh, you can see the whole thing that I'm responding to. So when you're in analysis and they're asking about your dreams, do you dream of death? I'd have to look back at my records. Gosh, this is 25 years ago. I should. No, uh, pardon me, 35 years ago. I actually have my dream book from then. I haven't looked at it for years. I know that there was a lot of darkness in the analysis. Mitch tended to be very serious, and I was grieving, really, for myself. So it wasn't an analysis full of life and energy, but it was a very serious one, a very hardworking one. I really value that. I think simply that it took me seriously, right? Now, later on, a few years later, the next stage, I'm just telling too much of my life story, aren't I? But we're almost done. Um, at a later stage, as I believe I may have told you, when I come to Newcastle, get a job. At one point, I'm a bit bored and lonely. I go to the Jung Institute in Zurich just to sort of reconnect with that kind of work and gradually decide to actually study. And I get Verena Kost as one of my supervisors, she being not only very tough-minded, but having written the book on grief, a book on death for which she was famous. And fairly early in our supervision, I'm showing her my patient notes, and she's saying, all right, well, you're obviously giving people some space and some direction, giving them some way forward when they're trapped, and giving them some hope. Why don't you do that for yourself? Wow. Which is sort of like a smack in the chops, right? It's sort of, and it absolutely rocked me back, I'm telling you, right? I remember it's that kind of electric shock of, I had no idea I was thinking this way. And I think what you can say is from all the different stages, I've talked about it too much length, I know. There are points where I really sort of aligned with the deathly aspect of this, which is different than a lot of people with AIDS. You know, actually, the great majority of them will say, I'm living, I don't, you know, I don't identify with that. I'm living my life. It's fine, particularly post 96. So many people do this. But I tended to go, I'm going to die soon. That's just the way it is. And I will be tough, right? So even when the medications came in and HIV was no longer a death sentence, 
death was still your traveling companion. Absolutely. Because, and this is where you notice that you've made some sort of decision, but made it in a not particularly articulated fashion. You've made it implicitly. I never said to myself, this is it, right? But at some level, I simply decided it is easier to deal with death if I, as it were, give up, even if in a tough-minded way, right? You've seen people do this in military situations where they go, well, I know this is going to be the death of me. I just give up and I'll, I'll do what I can. It's, it's a dangerous attitude. And she alerted me to that, and I had not even realized it was there. But once she pointed to it, it was like, look, it's so obvious, right? So it's so interesting to change from that. And this really sort of underlines the importance of being conscious of what's in our unconscious, because what's in your unconscious was not just a traveling companion. It had its hands on the steering wheel, if (laughs) I'm using that analogy. Of course, it was in charge, clearly clearly. And it, and it's interesting how many things I was doing in those years, a sort of gay and lesbian study group running the newsletter. And now I'm going to teach in Hong Kong and get a grant for this and go to Darmstadt and give speeches. And, and all of it had a distinct quality at the back of my mind of, this is my last hurrah. See, it's not all a waste. I'll be dead in a couple of years, but this looks good. Isn't that strange? Well, I have to admire your industry. (laughs) But that the roots of it were so, it's so strange to see that now. Now, in 2016, when you were told you were unable to pass on HIV due to the new medications, you burst into tears. Tell me about that. Uh, It was summer and it was Switzerland and I was taking a train through the countryside. And let me tell you, it was beautiful. This was very far from cities. This was the whole valleys and hills and going a long distance with no cities, no houses. And the train was basically empty. You know, those exquisitely clean Swiss trains, one that was just basically two cars, and I was the only person on it going through the countryside, which tells you how beautifully things are taken care of. Everything, of course, perfectly on time also. And on the seat was a newspaper, which said in German that they'd released a study, this will be the study that I'm sure everyone's seen, a longitudinal study that went on for, I'm sorry, I don't remember how long, 20 years, where they had a number of partners and individuals, and they were checking if people are taking HIV medications, what's the chance? that someone having sex with them will get infected. And the chance is zero. And I'm sitting on the train, fortunately alone, and I burst into tears. Which again, this is another time in my life where I discover something about myself that I had decided emotionally, not even cognitively. And it was like, oh my God, I really gave up on sex, love, being with anybody. No wonder I live alone. You know, it's a cold thing to see, but there you are, right? I can understand the tears if you've held yourself apart from everybody for all those years. Of course. That's what Verena was pointing out. She was saying, look, you know, you've kind of cut yourself off from things, haven't you? 
and the fact that I hadn't seen it. That's what makes it so ludicrous, right? (laughs) She says this, and I'm thinking, I completely missed this for years, 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 years. And now you have a different relationship with death. You're no longer, it's no longer its hands on the steering wheel. Are you able to have a different relationship with your fellow man? It is different. I'm not sure how much of it reads from outside. Certainly the mood, the the connection to people is a bit different. Expectations are still low, but I can see that they're low. You know, uh, lockdown, I think, has been strange for many people, but I've been rather careful just because I can be, right? Somebody gave me a hug the other day, and I remember thinking, whoa, this hasn't happened for a while. And I know you know because you have seen patients. Sometimes someone comes in and there's a bit of fear on them or a bit of coldness or a bit of sadness or franticness or there's something on the surface or something that subtly goes between the things they say. And they say, oh, my relationship to people is so difficult because recurrently this thing happens. And you're looking at them and you can say, I can see it. And I'm willing to bet that my friends can see some of this in me. I can't, of course. It's me, right? It's my shadow. I think it has changed because I know that the results from the outside world have changed. But this would be one of the mysteries that I would struggle with with myself. But you can see that's the judgmental, (laughs) that's the judgment coming in again, right? So I'm seeing, first of all, being over-identified with death because sort of death basically came and put a bag over your head and kidnapped you, really. Of course, of course. And I went quietly. And you went quietly. (laughs) Yes. And you lived in death's basement for many years. Of course, of course. Just going, it would be almost like one of those cases where, no, I can't leave. It's, it's, you know, I can't. The door is open, but you can't leave. (sighs) That's such a classic statement. And then you realize that you can leave, the door is open, and you're out blinking in the sunshine. Sure. And yet, I'm, I'm sorry to, uh, for this not to be no, the end okay. of the movie. This is where I challenge myself also. Go ahead. But you're in your mid-60s. You know, I'm 63. I'm, you know, I'm following on close behind. Fortunately, mm-hmm. I haven't actually been down in the basement. Right. But, you know, I'm aware that death is around. So that changes the relationship again, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. We exist in time. I'm sorry, that's the way it is. You know, there's a point where Jung says rather casually, you know, sometimes analysands reach a point where they realize that they have, I can't remember how he says this, essentially bound themselves or trapped themselves for years and they can undo it, but they can't get the time back. We can do nothing about that. And it's a terrible thing to say, but it is ruthless. And it, and at times, I think that part of me that is a bit ruthless about time and death and judgment, this is valuable in analysis, because I have seen people go round and round and round and round, and I tend to be the person who says, you know there's a point where you're really going to regret this and you will have no time left 
to fix it. Mm, I could imagine. Yep. I could imagine it'd be tough being in your office. <laughs> but you know, people are usually grateful for it because I maybe just because I don't do it meanly. I say, "Look, this is really serious. You're not going to live forever. You can do this again, but it's not going to get better." And although nobody would want to be in death's basement for all those years, there are gifts from it, is I think yes. what you're saying. Yes. Slightly dangerous gifts, but but this is, you know, in Jungian work we're familiar with, archetypal stuff is great. Archetypal stuff is dangerous. Don't hang around it too casually, right? <laughs> so... I see that's frozen, so things a bit. But this tends to be, you know, it's it's that being willing to look things that are too heavy to look at. Oh, this is a really clumsily constructed sentence, but being able to look them right in the eye, not really defiantly, not really despairingly, just sort of going, "Oh my gosh, you really are here. I need to look at you." And so that is the relationship we really sort of want to have with death, that you really are here. I'm going to look at you. I'm not going to panic. Death is our traveling companion. Yes. This is a finite journey. Death won't go away because we want death to. I'm not really pronouncing it, but <laughs> it's, it's tricky. It's, uh, and I, and I am aware when I reach that conclusion, when I become that person, which is a person that I've been sort of, of the various persons that I have been, if I may say it that way, in relation to death over my life. The one I am now is there. I'm not even saying it's ideal. I can hear that it's a little harsh. It holds on to my experience and the dark side of my experience. It's a little cold. It's a little harsh. Is it really the only place to be? It's where I am right now. You know, there's a, I can't remember quite when this happened. It was toward the end of my last analysis. It was nice that my last of four Jungian analysts over the years, uh, Brian Stevenson in Leicester. Brian can take things very seriously, but he's just innately kind, kinder than I am, which was a great help to me. He was warmer than my two tougher analysts. And that was good for me. It was good to end with that for three years. And there was a point when I brought to him, not really a dream, but sort of a vision or an imagination that was absolutely clear. Uh, Part of my background in a lot of this is also that I've always loved science fiction and fantasy. I've always read that. So the way people write about time travel or alternate timelines, different lives, you know, this is a very common trope, right? And it does all sorts of different things in the literature, but people will often imagine what if everything had gone differently. And I'm pretty accustomed to thinking this. I know there are sort of psychotherapeutic bodies that would regard that as a mistake, but hey, this is something I've been imagining since I was a kid. I'm not going to stop now. So this vision was, what if things had gone the way I think I wish they'd gone? I'm still in San Francisco. AIDS didn't really happen, or it was much more minor. 
we didn't have a lot of the more disastrous political messes, a lot of the economic damage, a lot of the sort of right-wing cruelty that's been such a major part of the world since the 80s. Things aren't perfect, but the city is pleasant. People are basically happy. We bumble along. I found something creative that works rather than trying to be a a composer, I'm probably, say, a theater director or an opera director. I think I would have been good at that. And I'm relatively successful, not, you know, hugely famous, but who, who cares? We have fun and it goes well. And I have a partner and we have a house and it's evening and we're walking up the hill because we go for walks. And I'm a little higher on the hill and looking down at him and that dog of his, and they're playing as always, and it's a bit ridiculous, and I'm laughing. And I want to cry at this moment. (laughs) Yeah. And I look at that, and that's not my life, right? But the fact that I can imagine it is enough. How can that be? But it's absolutely true. Even now, calling it up Five or six years later, I'm like, yes, thank you. In some sort of Taoist flow, sense of awareness, sense of universes, sense of what I am, what I have become, what I've lost, what I've gained, I look at that and I go, it is enough that I can imagine that. And it's okay with me that I'm in this line. And I've called that an unlived life review. Do you think it's actually worth thinking about those sort of moments where, you know, something terrible happened and you do the version where actually, you know, somebody, somebody, um, it's the often called the sliding doors moment. There's a a movie. Of course, of course, from that movie, yes. Where she misses the she misses the tube and that means she doesn't get home on time to discover Absolutely. her boyfriend had Absolutely. cheated, et cetera, et cetera. That if we missed the tube train, that meant that we weren't at the wrong place and we had a different life. Of course, of course. And do you think that's a good thing to do or do you think that's actually... A, <laughs> actually that is I, to cannot, be- I cannot tell you. I can tell you some people would say, no, no, you're creating a false, distracting... You know, (laughs) I would do it anyway. I've been reading fantasy and science fiction since I was a kid. Of course, I'm going to imagine that. And long before the movie Sliding Doors, it exists on the page. Gosh, this goes back to the 1930s, 1940s, where it's really common, right? And you can actually sort of collect theory of time travel in science fiction and see that there are certain patterns people follow. There's a lot of wish fulfillment, which is okay. I mean, what the heck? Why not? When I look at that picture of me in a different San Francisco, honestly, it is comforting. I can be done with it. Having really seen it, I don't mind that I haven't lived in San Francisco since 97, that I live alone, that... uh, you know, that my health is wobbly, but, and on the other hand, I have patience and it's so thrilling and connecting with them is so amazing. As you know, every patient is just a whole different universe. It's so astounding seeing the range of what is, which I think before I started working with patients, that complete angle of things, how deep and complex each person is inside. And I'm not saying this is just a nice thing to say. It's absolutely true. You go, Wow. So that's exciting. And I'm doing that in my 60s. 
The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the things we're doing this year on The Meaningful Life is we're inviting people to write in if they've got a problem or they've got something they'd like us to talk about. And I've got a letter for me and Paul to discuss. And here is the letter. I'm not good at endings. I really worry when I have not heard from friends for a while. I keep thinking our relationship is over. At some point, the anxiety tips over into anger and I think they're not a true friend or not worth bothering about. Once when I decided to have a clear out of the address book on my phone, I accidentally pushed call rather than delete, and we ended up talking, not just talking, it was like nine months or so of no contact never happened and we were just picking up a call from yesterday. It is not just friends, I hate the ends of courses too, especially when they do those ritual type things where you have to go around thanking people for what you got from them. It is highly unlikely, despite all the protestations of undying love and promises to start a WhatsApp group, that we will never meet again. I would rather sneak away than go through all this pain. I know I'm oversensitive to endings. I have ended relationships in the past when I've intuited that they were over, so I can just do the leaving rather than be left. Just recently, I've started to try and get in contact with people for whom I've lost touch. Should I just accept that I don't like endings and stop beating myself up or face up to them? Well, I don't think I can think of a better person to ask this question to, Paul. (laughs) We're going to get a tough answer to this. (laughs) Well, I will point out that the person writing this, as they work through their first idea, I'm not good at endings, and the examples and the times it's gone well, and the times it's gone badly. And then they're saying, I can see some of my habits where I'm trying to close it down too quickly, and then there's a problem. And finally, they'll say it in this either-or way. I don't like ends and stop beating myself or face up to them. And obviously, the answer to the last question is yes. Well, I would say both (laughs) things. It's like... You know, they're giving alternatives, but it's like, yes, you're going to have to do both. And they're yeah. basically the same thing, right? Yeah. That it's always it's always a good place to start with accepting what you're doing rather than of beating course. yourself up for it. I call it the second wound. So, you know, you get yeah. the, the yes. arrow comes in and fires at you and you've got, Ugh, and then you get really annoyed with yourself that you've got an arrow in you and you stick a second arrow in and sort of <laughs> go in the wound to make certain you've got all the pain out of it. So, you know, just accept you've got an arrow. Don't put another arrow in it in the same place. I have to admit you say that and I think, ew, but okay, yes. Um. <laughs> it's, I've, I've obviously seen too many St. Sebastians. Oh, that's what it is. That's what it is. But there is a sense that it's interesting that the key thing here is how much they've worked around it on their own. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense that one would want to aim in the direction of, you've really created this yourself. I get that it seems terribly heavy and terribly weighty, and terribly tough. But I have to say, it doesn't seem to have a whole lot to do with the world. In what way? Well, it doesn't seem to have that much to do with the people with whom they're engaging or not engaging. 
This is truly, you know, a ball of energy and difficulty that someone is battling with in themselves. And I'd want to really focus on it that, that in that direction. Right. Uh, I'd probably have to do a different version of this. Can I tell you something I did with one of my analysands that is probably going to sound a little shocking, but it worked? Okay. We're ready to be shocked. Well, okay. Older man, very wise, very kind, except uh, he's occasionally been hitting his wife of many years and very irritable at points. And he's been trying to deal with that and stop. She's been angry, upset. You know, they're both smart, professional people. She's not, you know, crushed under this, but she's like, don't you dare ever do that again, you know? hit her on the shoulder, hit her on her back when she's done something annoying, right? And he couldn't stop himself. He was saying the red mist, this kind of thing. And his children are grown and they think it's terrible that he's done that. And, you know, he's a professional. He's a good-hearted man. People like him. And he kept going round and round and round for several years about what is this? What do I do? What do I... And I was finally like, okay, look, stop come out and walk with me to the end of the dock, which was kind of a metaphorical thing, but he got it. I said, all right, you're older. Your wife has already died. You are in your home. You know that you're going to die within the next few days. It's not horrible, but you can't do anything about it. No one's going to come and help. You may be able to reach your children by phone, but they're not going to be able to come to you. You know, this is not going to be dreadful, but this is it. There's really nothing else left. Who are you? And he started to cry. You know, and I was thinking, oh my gosh, did that go too far? This is a bit, this is a bit that, that death facing, you know, it's a dangerous thing to do, but. Yeah, I'm glad you're not my <laughs> But he did take it beautifully. Let me say without too many details, he is actually a professional religious person. So he takes care of people in these contexts. So this should not be a mystery to him. But asking this was a shock, and we have talked about it since. But it was like, there is going to be a point when there's no time left to go around and around about this. You've got a couple of days and this is it. It's not an awful couple of days, but it's a couple of days. What do you do with it? Who are you? Who's left? So this doesn't mention death at all, this letter. Do you no, think that our attitude to endings is a, a way of actually having death step in? So rather than face death, we sort of uh, don't face endings. Do you think there's any connection between those two I think that two probably depends on the person. I think those, um, you know, the sense of an ending, the recent book by the social, social psychologists, where they were saying really a lot of our culture is focused on continuance after death or avoiding thinking about death or rescuing ourselves from death. So, Obviously, for me to leap into that kind of exercise, which is a heavy exercise, I get it. It's risky. Probably a lot of people wouldn't like it. It worked in this case. But to leap into it with this person is probably going too fast. But there is something about 
you get that you created this and it will continue as long as you continue creating it because it's so unlinked to the universe in a lot of ways. And I'm wondering about his own experiences of bereavement as well. Did it actually feel like people just disappeared and there weren't proper endings? And And that's unbearable, so that'll never happen again. Yeah. Right? So I would be asking about that. And I would thinking about, you know, it might be worth spending some time thinking and talking about those endings so that they're not sort of so just up in the air. Right. Well, they're unbearable. They can't be looked at, so they have to be ended, right? That's the problem, which is why you're right. Let's let's slow down a bit with some of them, which is not completely unlike what I did with that man where I was saying, okay, you know, it's just you and me in, in the otherwise empty house, and I'm not even there. You're just aware of making yourself some food and lying down for a while and How do you feel about that? As I say, a dangerous move. Sorry about that. (laughs) Well, and the other thought that I was having was I sort of rather laughed at the groups where they were all having um, these protestations of undying love. And (laughs) and there's a certain sort of wicked truth in there. So it's bizarre. On one level, our correspondent is actually running away from the ends, but at the same time, there's a, a wicked sense of the truth of it. Um, well, the truth. You'll pardon me. I'm going to be a foreigner here. You're being English. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know the truth. It will vary for people. Some people might really mean that, and they might even mean it transitionally in the moment. It might not be the most permanent commitment to their entire lives okay but it it will be very english to say see that's fake then and i'm like well i don't know i don't know well thank you for pulling me up on that and thank (laughs) you thank you for being a witness on the meaningful life i have to ask you what makes your life meaningful you know i looked at that question i told you about that image of a happy version of my life And, you know, this one isn't a non-happy version. It's just a different one. I think in the last few years, it's become very clear to me that my life is meaningful. It just is. And I don't have anything causative for that, right? I don't have an external frame to which that refers. There's a sense that I'm no longer as irritated as I used to be at things I haven't done or things I've failed. That no longer matters. It's like, fine. It's just what happened. Who cares? And it just feels as though the whole thing is of a piece and it's just what it's supposed to be. That's literally all that there is. So is something actually deeper that actually life is meaningful and so I don't need to find a reason why my individual life is meaningful because the whole experience of mankind being here is meaningful? Absolutely. And I know that when it when we say that, it sounds like a quasi-religious or spiritual prescription. But I've just reached the point where it's just existentially true for me. And it's like, wow, that's calm. Yes. You know, because it does sound like what both Taoism and Buddhism and actually several religions tend to prescribe, right? But now it just feels true. And sort of almost it's necessary to go deeper to find meaning. And maybe if you keep going, 
what you just find is pure meaning. Just, just meaning. Yeah. You know, it's like all of it was worth it. All of it is worth it. That's kind of an amazing thing. But I actually experienced my life that way. It's strange. I still make blunders, but it's not a big deal. Well, we are going to have to end here. But if you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life, the conversation continues. I'm going to find out from Paul three things he knows deep down to be true. And I think they're going to be bracing. So if you'd like to find out what those are, here's the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.